Welcome to episode 4 of Batman Nightcast, the podcast that chronicles the comic book adventures of Batman starting in 1986 after the crisis on Infinite Earths. I'm Ryan Daly. I'm Chris Franklin. And this time we're talking about Batman issue 402, which is a milestone issue. Not so much in Batman's character history, but rather for this podcast. Because this is the first issue written by fan favorite author Max Allen Collins. <laughs> Okay, fan favorite might be a tad misleading. I think most people, at least those in our circle of friends and listeners, are pretty critical of Collins' run on Batman. Maybe those critics have a point, or maybe our closer examination of his Batman stories on this podcast will reveal some legitimate diamonds in the rough. We shall see. But before we talk about his work on Batman, let's find out who he is and how he got here. So, this episode's creator spotlight is on writer Max Allen Collins. Collins was born in Muscatine, Iowa in 1948. He attended the Iowa Writers' Workshop at my alma mater, the University of Iowa. Beginning in the 1970s, he wrote a series of crime fiction novels based on the character Quarry, a former Marine sniper turned assassin. Then in the early 80s, he started the Nolan series of novels about a professional thief in the same mold as Richard Starks Parker. He also wrote a series of novels based on a mystery writer in Iowa who solves crimes. Since the 90s, Collins has written the novelizations for roughly 20 films and contributed novel tie-ins to television shows such as Bones, Dark Angel, and NYPD Blue. In the 90s, Collins collaborated with veteran mystery author Mickey Spillane, and after the latter's death in the early 2000s, Collins was granted permission to complete several of Spillane's unfinished manuscripts. Collins' work in comics goes back nearly to the start of his professional writing career, when, in 1977, he took over scripting of the Dick Tracy newspaper strip from creator Chester Gold, with Gold's longtime assistant Rick Fletcher handling the art chores. Then, in 1983, Collins created the comic book title Ms. Tree with artist Terry Beatty that would run through the 80s under multiple publishers. In 1998, Collins wrote the graphic novel Road to Perdition with artist Richard Pierce Rayner. The story, Collins described as an unabashed homage to the Japanese manga Lone Wolf and Cub, was adapted into a film in 2002 starring Tom Hanks, Daniel Craig, and Paul Newman. With Dick Tracy on his resume, as well as the creation of Ms. Tree and more than a dozen mystery novels to his credit by 1986, it was little wonder that Batman editor Denny O'Neill tapped Max Allen Collins to write a fill-in story on Batman while Frank Miller and David Mazzuchelli worked on their story that would become Batman Year One. That fill-in became two issues, Batman 402, which we'll be discussing on this episode, and 403, and eventually more issues after Batman Year One came out. In each of his first two issues, Collins provided an essay describing how he got the gig, his longtime love of Batman, and how the Cape Crusader compared to the other detective Collins was most associated with, Dick Tracy. In the first of these essays, included with Batman 402, Collins admits that to him, the definitive Batman is the way Bill Finger and Dick Sprang envisioned him. I think, and this is something that will play out in later issues of Batman and later episodes of this podcast, but I think the Dick Sprang influence on Collins' Batman stories is really obvious. What do you think, Chris? Well, yeah, it's not in this one uh, <laughs> at all. But yeah, I, I think you can see that. But oddly enough... The Bill Finger, Dick Spring Batman is pretty much going on over in Detective, as we'll mm-hmm. see next episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anything else to add to the spotlight? No, you know, it's it's interesting because 
for all intents and purposes, Collins was a perfect fit for Batman based on based on his appreciation of the character, based on his resume. And it really is interesting how his run is fairly maligned because it it's sounded really good on paper. You know, I mean, it's and uh, we'll we'll get into, you know, what we think about this issue. But, uh, you know, there is no doubt that, you know, amongst the Batman creators of this time, his his name's often seen as kind of a stumbling block amongst, you know, the the Miller, Mazzuccelli and and. Bar Davis uh, runs that that really did fire on all cylinders. So right, and the th- the truth is, his run was not that long. I mean, including mm-hmm. a story in one of the annuals, he only wrote like eight Batman stories in these comics. And mm-hmm. during that time, he had six different artists. So yeah. I, I I think it was a little bit. Tra- and and again, we're we're talking about stuff that will come up much later in the podcast, a couple of episodes from now, but. I'm of the opinion that it's not so much his talent and, and his vision of Batman, but more so one particular decision that might have been his choice or it might have been Denny O'Neill's choice. But it's mm-hmm. really, I think most of it hinges on the introduction of a new Robin uh, and, mm-hmm. and how that plays out. I think that sort of, I, I think that, uh, well, I mean, I, I know for a fact that it is for you. It's a major sticking point and it's a major problem Like uh, as well. And I wonder... How much of that is really his doing versus how much was the needs of editorial or publication like dictate? So right, right. We shall see. In any event, later yes. this episode, uh, listeners, you will hear us talk about Batman issue four hundred and two. But before we get to that, folks, it is a new month at least in the publication timeline for this series. Uh, this issue has a December cover date, so we are going to be showing you our spinner rack section, which deals with more comics that were published with a December cover date. And first thing I think we could mention is that the Legends miniseries that we talked about with the last two issues that were Legends tie-ins, Legends is still going on. This month we had the publication of Legends issue two and two more tie-in issues, Cosmic Moy issue 1 and Green Lantern Core issue 207. Uh, what were some of the other DC books that came out this month that you noticed, Chris? It's interesting. Amazing Man, which was a, mm-hmm. a cute little DC humor series. The cover of issue number 12 has Amazing Man uh, dreaming about the Dark Knight version of Batman and Robin, the Carrie Kelly Robin, uh, as drawn by Frank Miller. Yep. Uh, they're leaping on the cover with him, so... Uh, I think that was uh, probably a little favor to Bob Rosakis, who you know was also one of the office people at DC to try to boost his boost his sales a little bit on Amazing Man. <laughs> Did not I work, as issue. I understand it. Yeah, unfortunately, didn't work. I actually, I actually have that issue, uh, but uh, as, as far as I remember, there's not. A, I don't think there's anything on the. There might be something on the inside, but. Uh, I, I think it's mostly everybody remembers that cover anyway because it, it's one of the few times during the, the hype of well this is right after the Dark Knight finished uh, coming out with its four issues but it was during that period so yeah we also had Man of Steel issues five and six by John Byrne Secret Origins issue nine near and dear to my heart that is the issue that covered the Golden Age Flash and Skyman also known as the Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy mm-hmm. what else. 
Uh, well, going outside of, of DC, uh, you can see that, uh, of course, G.I. Joe and Transformers are big. There's a lot of G.I. Joe are. and Transformers. <laughs> yeah, I wrote down the list for these. We had G.I. Joe issue 54, G.I. Joe and Transformers issue 2, G.I. Joe Comics Magazine issue 1. And that was a digest issue reprinting issues 1 and 2. And uh-huh. I wonder if there's any place in our little sphere that has a digest podcast. I don't know. It seems like I've heard heard mentioned that there might be one coming soon, like Digest Cast on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. <laughs> Yay. Plug, plug, plug. Yay. Well, you know, when Rob gets a Rob and Shag get around to these, mm. and I'm sure they will, I know that part of the discussion is gonna be these Marvel Digest have horrible printing. Oh. They are horrible. Uh, at least the first few issues. I have this G.I. Joe and I have the Spider Man magazine that I think's coming out this month too. And it it's it's got that nasty flexographic printing. They didn't do anything to try to, to make the uh word balloons like the text larger or anything, which sometimes the D C digest did. And it's just really, really a struggle to read. So it's it's unfortunate because right this is about the time that DC quit doing Digest and Marvel started doing Digest, and they didn't last very long. But I think part of it was because they were just piss poor looking. I mean, there's, no. there's no two ways about it. Yeah, no idea about that. Yeah. Speaking of Transformers, you also get the number one issue of Transformers the movie. Yeah. So uh, which was exciting. The movie was awesome, of course. The comic, a bit of a let down and i always thought the transformers comic from marvel the biggest thing that hurt it the coloring Mm -hmm. i mean if you look at the cover of the issue number one why is hot rod or rodimus prime why is he pink or magenta i mean he's supposed to be you know i don't know red (laughs) yeah (laughs) they color him like very basic like one color almost and they don't even pick the right color (laughs) Uh-huh. Not to be overly negative, but yeah, the, the, that's the biggest trouble I had with the Transformers comic at Marvel was the coloring. And I don't know if it was a limitation of the time or, or what. But. And I, I love the Transformers cartoons. I got into the toys. I could never get into the Transformers Marvel comics. I tried. I would pick them up from time to time, but it just didn't click. Like, G.I. Joe was my thing. I got G.I. Joe, and I never stopped. Those were the first comic books I ever read, and I read it almost until the book was canceled in, in the early 90s. But uh, Transformers, it just didn't have the same thing. And I think part of it was the art style and the coloring and things like that just kind of turned me off. But, uh, but there were a few other yeah. Transformers comics that also came out that month. Transformers issue 23 and Transformers Universe number one. Now, this was a uh, this was a sort of who's who guide, but in the Marvel style, which was more of like the Ohatmu or not, which was just kind mm-hmm. of gave you like the, the sort of general biographical information. And uh, both Transformers and GI Joe had versions of their books like that. Uh, GI Joe had the Order of Battle, and Transformers mm-hmm. had Transformers Universe. So just between those two licensed franchises, you had like seven different books came out this month with either GI <laughs> Joe or Transformers or both on the cover. I should have pointed out that the uh, Superpowers, speaking of toy tie-ins, yeah. the Superpowers comic miniseries, that issue is uh, – is that issue number four? Yep. Issue number four looks like it could be a Legends tie-in <laughs> <laughs> because it's got a bunch of people protesting superheroes. There's effigies of Superman on fire. I mean – it, I mean, if you didn't know better, you'd say, oh, this is a Legends tie-in. 
Uh, no, it's not. It just happens to have a similar story, at least a similar cover that would fit in with it. So, yep. like I said before, that one's just a kind of an odd. That's an odd bag because there's a lot with Dark Side going on in that at the same time. So if you if you like to think that superpowers actually happens in DC continuity, which it really can, honestly, then you're going to have a hard time reconciling with with what's going on in Legends right now. <laughs> right, right. And just a few other books for this month that I kind of mentioned. Who's Who, Volume 22, that was the Superman issue. And from Marvel to others, kind of noteworthy, The Nom, Issue 1, uh, Vietnam Set Story. And you can hear all about that issue in the first episode of Tom Panarese's podcast, In Country. And then mm-hmm. Howard the Duck, The Movie, Issue 1, also came out. <laughs> yeah, I think last last time we had the the magazine special mm-hmm. that adapted the whole thing. But, you know, Marvel loved to take those movie adaptations and, and do like one big magazine special and then strip them uh, out into separate comics. And uh, so, yeah, so now you got four, probably four more months of Howard the Duck the movie to, yeah. <laughs> to wait through. <laughs> uh, good um, times. Anyway, any others? or? I think that's pretty much it. I mean, there's, there's some uh, – it's it was a you know it really is interesting to look at what's out you know go to Mike's Amazing World and and look around and and see what was out at the time it's a mixed bag man it's mm. it's it's about as eclectic as you can get but it's really neat and you know I think uh, you know I guess if you looked at the comics now you'd see see a pretty good variety too but uh, I guess we're we're nostalgic for it because you know we were we were there so. Sure. <laughs> All right, folks, we are going to take a short promotional break, and then we will be back with our review of Batman 402. Don't go away. Great comics come in all shapes and sizes. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's Digest Cast, a new show dedicated to our beloved pocket-sized treasures from that bygone era of the 70s and 80s. Hosted by the Fire and Water podcast team of Robin Shag, and we'll be joined from time to time by special guests. It's Digest Cast, because big things come in small packages. Coming soon to the Fire and Water podcast network. is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Eight Man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? What about uh, White Tiger? What about uh, White Tiger? Uh, Doc Samson. Who's he? Star Fox. That's a video game. The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Batman issue 402 has a December 1986 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the actual on-sale date was September 11th that year. The issue has a 75-cent price tag and cover art by Jim Starlin, who'd spent most of the previous decade working at Marvel on various cosmic-related projects. The cover to Batman 402 shows the Dark Knight on his back being strangled by... The Dark Knight? What? Yes, two Batman locked in combat, and the text blurb saying, There's nothing so savage as a man destroying himself. What do you think of this cover? This is a really strong cover. Uh, you know, it's 
this would just jump out at you, I think, on the stands and say, okay, I got to figure out what's going on here. Why is Batman choking himself? The artwork's great. You know, bat, the Batman that's on top of the other Batman just looks really intense. And I really like how Batman's cape is like going behind the logo. That's something we didn't bring up. They, with the, uh, we talked about it, Batman 400 had the painting of the bat, the Bill Sinkovich uh, bat, you know, behind the mm-hmm. words Batman. But Denny O'Neill has apparently dropped the Batman silhouette from behind the words Batman um, on these logos ever since. And uh, this time, Batman's cape's kind of filling in for that. Uh, Of course, Starlin's Batman ears are huge. (laughs) They are. And they will get get more so inside the issue. I mean, I'm pretty sure, you know, Batman, you know, was picking up, you know, TV channels on his ears. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah, but... I think this is a – I remember seeing this cover on the stands, and it, it's not the first time we've seen two Batman fighting, of course. That's an, you know, that's an old trope, the, the evil double, but it's very intense. It's gritty. There's a, there's a bottle next to him, you know, so it, it looks you know, more gritty and urban, and the orange background kind of makes the blues and grays of the costume pop. So yeah, I, I think it's a really strong cover. Yeah, I, I, I really, I like that just kind of flat, like no, there's ground stuff like the bottle in the foreground, but like in the background behind them, there's no detail and everything. It's just this orange color that I really like and I do, I do think it pops. It's nice. Yeah, I, I second everything that you said. I think it's a really cool cover. Uh, Starlin really did something dynamic with this. Doesn't look like what else you're, you'll be seeing. And I get, I, I hate to keep jumping on this point, but, this could have been a cover for Batman 401. Like, I think this is, if you've got a, if you've got a big sort of semi milestone type of issue, this is the type of cover to throw on there, not just, you know, sketch shot of what's her name. But I, okay. I mean, yeah, move, yeah. Moving on, moving on. We've had that argument. All right. That horse is dead over in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm going to keep beating it more and more and more. Keep beating it. <laughs> All right. Let us get into the story. Batman 402, which is untitled, is written by Max Allen Collins, illustrated by Jim Starlin, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Dana Graziunis, and edited by Denny O'Neill. Dick and Jane, an upwardly mobile couple, came to one of the seedier parts of Gotham City to see a rock concert, but getting out alive may be too much to ask. As the couple walks to their car, debating the quality of the band they just saw, they're stopped by a pair of muggers named Roach and Spider. Dick eagerly hands over his wallet and pleads for their lives, an act that disgusts Spider, so he beats Dick over the head with a wrench. Roach grabs Jane and makes suggestive threats until he hears an unusual sound and looks back to see the silhouette of the Batman standing over Spider's limp body. Roach comes at Batman with a knife. The Dark Knight easily disarms the mugger, gets him in a headlock, and violently snaps his neck, killing Roach as mercilessly as he killed Spider. Later, Batman rides a motorcycle back to his headquarters, feeling good about killing the two muggers. Previously, he had sworn an oath to protect and serve, and to kill only in self-defense. But crime-fighting in Gotham required a more proactive touch, so he crossed the line to murdering criminals, and feels totally justified in doing so. If this doesn't sound like Batman's normal way of thinking, you probably recognize that this so-called Batman rides his motorcycle back to a small suburban home, parks his ride in the garage, and walks down to his makeshift crime lab in the basement. And just for good measure, he pulls the cowl off to reveal a blonde-haired man that is most assuredly not Bruce Wayne. 
at 3 a.m., another Batman, maybe the real one this time, is summoned to Gotham Police Headquarters by the Bat Signal. But when the Cape Crusader arrives, he is not met by his friend and ally, Commissioner Gordon, but rather Deputy Commissioner Barnes and a whole squad of armed police who order Batman to surrender. When he doesn't, the cops open fire and the Batman leaps off the rooftop and swings away to the Batmobile, wondering who betrayed him and why. Batman goes to Commissioner Gordon's home and hears about some imposter dressed as Batman murdering two muggers. Gordon is furious that his ambitious deputy would exploit the shared trust between Batman and Gordon to set up this ambush. But the real Batman advises the commissioner to protect his image and go along with Barnes' witch hunt until they can prove his innocence. The next day, at stately Wayne Manor, Bruce Wayne's ward, Jason Todd, reads a newspaper article comparing Batman to Bernie Getz, the New York subway shooter. Meanwhile, Bruce asks Alfred to call all of the costume shops in the city about renting a Batman costume. Later, in the Batcave beneath the manor, Jason asks Batman if killing those two muggers, men who had killed before but gotten off on a technicality, was really so bad. Bruce reminds Jason that even though he has killed in the past, always as a last resort, they can never cross the line to cold-blooded murder, else they'd be no better than the scum they try to put behind bars every night. At that point, Alfred tells Bruce that every Batman costume in the city has been stolen. Later, Bruce Wayne meets a man named Howard Desmond, whose wife was murdered by Spider and Roach a year ago. Bruce talks up the victim's aid benefits of the Wayne Foundation, while subtly probing Desmond for details about the killing of his wife. Desmond says no one seemed to care much about the crime, except for the young detective who worked tirelessly to put Roach and Spider in jail, only to have the arrest overturned on a technicality. That night, Commissioner Gordon is called to the scene of another apparent killing by the Batman. The deputy commissioner warns Gordon that his friend has gone over the edge. Gordon insists he will pursue Batman if he has actually become a killer. Then the commissioner steps away to chat with a news reporter that is actually the real Batman in disguise. Gordon tells him that the fake Batman stopped a liquor store robbery by snapping the neck of the perpetrator and then throwing him through the plate glass window. Said perpetrator had already been arrested for murder during an armed robbery before, but was released on a technicality, just like what happened to Spider and Roach. The other commonality between the two cases was the detective on the case, Tommy Karma, the youngest detective in Gotham history, a hero cop promoted before he was ready to handle the rigors of the job. Tommy Karma became a sloppy detective, relying too much on strong-arm tactics to get convictions, but his arrests were dismissed because of police brutality charges against him. Back at the Batcave, Robin is eager to help Batman track down Tommy Karma, but Bruce benches his ward. Tommy, he believes, is too dangerous. Not only was he a former cop, but also a United States Marine and trained boxer and karate expert. But it's Tommy's damaged psyche that might make him the most dangerous of all. Batman tells Robin that Tommy arrested a mob hitman, and in retaliation, the mob planted a bomb in Tommy's car. The bomb ended up killing Tommy's wife and his six-year-old daughter. Batman goes to question Tommy while hoping this lead will turn up false. He'd prefer this bat imposter turn out to be a criminal plot to smear his name rather than a good cop gone bad. He goes to Tommy's house where Karma lives with his mother. Mrs. Karma lets the real Batman in, thinking it's her son. In her drunken, depressed stupor, she all but confirms what Batman suspects, that her son, who had idolized Batman for years, even to the point where Tommy named his daughter Robin, was driven crazy by the death of his wife and daughter, and now takes his revenge in the guise of Batman. 
After Mrs. Karma passes out in her chair, Batman goes into the basement to find Tommy's makeshift Batcave full of news clippings of Batman's cases, as well as a personal computer, police band radio, and crime lab. One of the press clippings refers to the mob hitman named the Snuffer, who is turning state's evidence in exchange for immunity. Batman learns from Commissioner Gordon that the Snuffer is under police and FBI protection, but that doesn't save the hitman from the imposter Batman crashing through the window of his safe house. The Karma Batman takes down the police detail and then throws the snuffer out the open window. The hitman screams as he falls toward his death, but at the last minute, the true Batman swings down and catches him, luring him safely to the street below. Batman tells a terrified and confused snuffer to shut up, but then Karma Batman drops down, kicking Batman in the back and admonishing him for saving trash like the snuffer. Karma wants to know why Batman is dressed like him, and when Batman refers to him as Tommy, he snaps and lashes out. Suddenly, Robin appears at the end of the alley. Karma Batman is startled by the sight of the boy Wonder, and flashes to his lost wife and daughter. The true Batman takes advantage of Karma's hesitation and knocks the imposter unconscious. Batman thanks Robin for disobeying his order to stay home, recognizing that the distraction gave him the chance to end the fight with Tommy Karma before either of them were too badly hurt. Robin wonders if his mentor really needed help, and Batman admits that he found it difficult to fight Tommy because of some there-but-for-the-grace-of-God-go-I psychological reasons. As police descend on the scene, Batman sticks around to clear his name. And that is the untitled story from Batman issue 402. Chris, what did you think? You know, I read this the first time, and I came to it with all of my Collins baggage, despite me trying not to. Um, I noted every bit of what I thought was clunky dialogue and somewhat hammy narration, and I just kind of scoffed at it, to be honest. But I read it again right before jotting down some notes, and, you know, I think it really works. It's, It's not perfect, but... It's strong, and it's the gritty type of story that Denny O'Neill seems to be after. Uh, I've, I've kind of changed my mind on it with the second reading. <laughs> what did you think of it? I enjoyed it. I think this was a strong issue. It's the, the idea of Batman fighting himself just like as a villain, a guy impersonating him, really doesn't thrill me as much as some of his other rogues or as much as any sort of random vigilante. I, I, I don't know. That's just kind of a, a personal taste thing. Like the visual of like other than the cover, I think the cover is the best image in the whole thing. But like the story, I wish this will sound crazy, but like I, I sort of wish that this story had been a little more decompressed. I wish like this story, th- I wish this chapter, because we will see more of Tommy Karma in the next issue of Batman. I wish this mm-hmm. chapter itself had been two issues. Um, mm-hmm. I wish we could have done a little bit more exploration. I wish they could have paced it a little bit more to get into like how this guy was broken, why this fixation on Batman of all things drove him, and why he decided to person. And also, Batman's reluctance, the real Batman's reluctance to fight him and to really to not want to believe that a cop could really be driven to this degree of crazy. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Yeah, I think, uh, especially considering we do get another issue, as you said. Um, yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that. And we'll get into the art. I mean, there's a lot of little tiny panels, little tiny, uh, little tiny figure drawings in this uh, that I think uh, the pacing is just kind of odd as far as the art goes, too. I mean, there's there's no denying Jim Starlin's uh, legend. He's he's an innovator. Marvel owes much of their epic nature of their cosmic 
universe, which is being, of course, exploited in the cinematic universe, and we're building up to a huge cosmic throwdown, mm-hmm. uh, they owe all that to Jim Starlin. I mean, based on some stuff that Lee and Kirby did, of course, too. But, you know, he's got a very unique style. But I think the cover is the strongest part of the issue as far as the art. Uh, this is not Jim Starlin at his best as far as artwork goes. And uh, there's some really there's some really odd, like I said, pacing choices. And, and I think if he, like you, like you said, dude, that's a good point. If he had two issues could have avoided all that and and uh, maybe uh, breathe a little more life into this one. Mm-hmm. And yet there's still like I, – I really like the intro. First of all, the and I didn't mention it in my synopsis, but the first page, page one is a splash page of Gotham City, which I, I don't know the, the technical term for – is this like a photostat or like how is – yeah, I think it's like a it's like a collage. Like yeah. it's like the old things like Jack Kirby used to do with like real photographs and yeah, and with a Batman figure like pasted in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I think that's really cool. I mean, I wish it wasn't necessarily so black and white. That might detract from it, even if like he get, even if he gave it just like a different color sky, like clouds or something in the background that might like set it off. But you know, we we have like the these two spider and roach, you know, attacking this couple. And on page three, the silhouette of Batman, just like how angular it looks like with these, like, like it looks like he's got like shoulder pads or something. And then like the mm-hmm. cape flowing. And then on page four, like when he's actually attacking, like there's just something big and slightly cartoonish, even though it doesn't look like it's on model for a cartoon. And, and maybe this is where I'm kind of thinking of the, the sort of Dick Sprang, Bill Finger influence, even though that was Max Allen Collins saying that, not Jim Starlin. But I, I sort of see it in this, you know, page four when he's attacking, mm-hmm. just something about these these images. I, I kind of feel like this is like a, a an 80s death wish vigilante type of take on some of those earlier silver age stuff. Um, <laughs> I, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Death wish is a good, is a good uh, way to go. The, like I said, the first time I read it, I thought the dialogue was a little, I mean, it was a little on the nose. It sounds like something out of a Canon movie, you know, uh, from the eighties. But, uh, uh, but you know, I mean, <laughs> this was the time of that. And, uh, you know, the, all the Death Wish sequels that made me think of that, you know, and just uh, Charles Bronson, you know, so, you know, as Batman. I'm Vengeance. I'm the Knight. I'm Batman. You know, <laughs> you know so, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, you know, it, it works. I mean, it's it's really it's pretty violent for a code approved comic. I, I double checked and said, is this? Yeah, this is approved by the comics code. I mean, you got a guy getting hit in the teeth with a wrench. It's in silhouette. But you see like a tooth flying out and Batman, like the, the fake karma Batman snaps a guy's neck on panel. Yeah. I mean, it's on panel that he's snapping this dude's neck. I mean, it's like you hear this Canuck sound effect. There's this, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's pretty grim. And, uh, yeah. it, but it's, you know, with Starlin, it, his style, he's really unique. You know, he's got, there's a little bit of a Neil Adams type anatomy going on, but he, he definitely does have more of a, uh, cartoony I don't want to say cartoony is not a really good word but it's just more uh, I guess illustrative uh, you know cartoonish way about the way he depicts things there's a couple times in here where both Jason and Alfred look cross-eyed their their eyes are really close together yeah Uh, which is really odd but uh, but his Batman is you know it's straight out of the 70s Batman Um, and he he drew Batman a couple times in uh, Detective Comics or uh, what's Batman Family I wrote it down here somewhere but it was it was during that period where 
yeah, Detective Comics 481 and 42, uh, Starlin wrote and drew a Batman story. And his Batman, the closest thing to it is is Bernie Wrightson's. Yeah. And uh, pretty soon the two of them will actually work together on a Batman project that we'll be talking about. So um, that's interesting. But, uh, yeah, his, his bat ears rival Bernie Wrightson's and maybe surpass them. <laughs> I, I think, like, looking at page 15, there's a shot of Batman in silhouette. I think his ears are as tall, maybe taller than his actual head. Like, if you take where the ears begin, if you, like, brought those down to, like, his jawline or his neck or something, mm-hmm. like, those ears are, like, those are, like, eight, nine inches. Those are, he's got, like, little machetes on his head. <laughs> he does. I mean, it looks like he could shish kebab with yeah, them, you exactly. know? It's, <laughs> I mean, I like, I like Batman with long ears. I mean, if, if you ask me which do I prefer, long ears or short, I like them long, but... I think you know. I don't even know if Kelly Jones ever gave back. That, that was ears. the that was the name I was thinking of. That was the one other person. I was like, did Kelly Jones even draw ears this long? Maybe, probably. And he was influenced by Bernie Wrightson's Batman too. Yeah. So yeah. of course he was influenced by Bernie Wrightson. Period. Yeah. But yeah. but he took things in his in his own direction. But yeah, it, it's definitely an extreme look for the Batman. But it's it's really odd because he's got such long ears and stuff. But there's some coloring choices in here where his cape and, and and all the blue elements are like powder blue at least in my copy mm-hmm. and it in some of the panels and it's really it's really strange to juxtapose that with the dark story and what's going on you know that he's in this super light blue cape and cowl you know? <laughs> one of the things that I, I liked about this story is it poses a question that I've, I've always kind of been thinking about but I've really been more fascinated and interested in recently and I think I, it kind of crystallized for me after Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice, um, mm-hmm. which is the question of should Batman use lethal force? Should right. Batman ever kill? I mean, there, you, there's always the exceptions. You can always say, like, in story, there's no other choice. It's a last or, – or, you know, he's, he saves somebody and lets somebody else fall to their death. There are ways to – there are exceptions to this rule. But here's my thing. And my reason that Batman should not kill. Batman is not a killer. And this actually, I, I think I was kind of thinking about this after I heard um, an old episode of Radio vs. the Martians by Mike Gillis and Casey Dorn. And they were talking about the vigilante type of character and, and like uh, revenge movies like Death Wish, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though it's great hearing Batman say, I am vengeance, that's not really, I, I, I don't think he's really out for vengeance. It sounds good, but that is not his mission. He's no. not out to punish. He's out to protect people. He's about to capture people. He's about to preserve justice in his own way. And in a proactive way, sort of scare people into not committing more crimes. That's part of the gimmick. But vengeance and revenge, I think those are those are motivated by passion. Those are crimes of passion to a degree. And Batman is too smart for that. He's too cerebral, too in his head for that. Because if Batman was going to kill, if he was going to say, okay, the world the world would be better if I just killed these criminals, he wouldn't dress up like the bat to do it. He's right. smart and he's smart enough and he knows the limitations of like the human body. If he was going to kill, he would be a sniper. You yeah. know, he would <laughs> Good point. <laughs> The whole mythos, the mystique of dressing up like a bat, 
is to give him an edge, is to help make his job easier so that he can fight people, so that he can take down a dozen bad guys in the room because they're, they're freaked out by the sight of like this gargoyle that just attacked them. Or that he can like get an edge on somebody holding a machine gun that, so that the guy, is, like, the guy has that moment of hesitation and doesn't blow him away. Well, if Batman is planning to kill those guys, if he's going out for vengeance... You don't need that edge of fear. You can just stalk them from a distance. So anytime that I hear, like, you know, Batman should be okay with killing or that killing, you know, is it's like, no, Batman wouldn't do that. He, he Once you get into the realm of Batman being a, a punishing type of vigilante like that, you break the 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 sort of shared understanding of what this character is all about and i can no longer suspend my disbelief that he would dress up like a batman so right i, I yeah i can i can see that i mean he, then he becomes the punisher and, exactly. and as as we've seen almost every adaptation of the punisher has been really reluctant to even include anything that looks like his comic book costume or uniform if if you will you know mm-hmm. so um, you know it's it's always they sneak it in one way or another somehow, but you know it doesn't. He doesn't need that because he's got you know an armory to just take these guys out. So he doesn't need that edge of a of a, even a symbol really. So right. this is my one problem with this story is I don't think that Collins. I think, I think this is begins kind of that that kind of fundamental difference with what he thinks Batman is to what I think the readers think Batman is at least at the time because. Robin Jason says you've you've killed before to which Bruce answers in self-defense Jason I you know when since when is, is Colin is he is he calling back to the very earliest Batman stories you know because the Earth One Batman as far as I know never killed anyone he may have pulled a Batman Begins and not saved an enemy but he didn't out and out kill them even in self-defense I which mean that is such a slippery slope like. Yeah, well, yeah, and, yeah, and and I I hated that line when I heard it. Like I I still enjoy Batman Begins, but like when he says that line, I call BS on that so quickly. I was <laughs> I was like, um, you could like no, you got plenty of time. Like oh god, I hate that. Well, see, I, I mean, I really I see what you're saying, but I don't because there has been plenty of times, especially with Raish, mm-hmm. that he has done that. Like the. The, the deal in the Mike W. Barr, uh, the annual that Trevor Von Eden drew that we're always gushing about, mm-hmm. uh, he, you know, lets uh, Raish get apparently atomized in space, which I, they never did explain how he came back from that. He <laughs> just kind of did in Batman 400, uh, which we covered, of course. And then there's Batman 400 where you and me discussed he knew that when he threw – did he know when he threw Raish into the pit that it might kill him? You know, so – you know, that right there, it's like, well, it might kill him, it might not. I really don't know. You know, that's with him, I think there's, of course, in the the, the different in the Nolan movies, he didn't have the whole uh, angle of the Lazarus pit, right, which right. would come could come back. But no, you're I right. That, that's 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 a good point. Like Rachel Ghoul seems to be the one exception that Batman has yeah. no trouble letting Rache die. But is it because we know Rache will be back? Is right. it because like we just have this built-in understanding that Raish is kind of immortal? Like if he did the same thing to Two Face, yeah, we, we would not respond the same way as no, if he was no. in the same situation with Raish Al Ghul. It's like because we yeah. understand, just it's just part of the character. It's built in the history that Raish will be back somehow. We understand it. It's like, but if he ducks out of the way, or if he throws Two Face over him, and Two Face goes into a vat of acid, it's like, uh. 
Yeah, that's uh, no, that doesn't work. Yeah, I think it's got to be, you know, in the back of, of Batman's mind, he's thinking, okay, he'll probably come back from this because he does every time. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, but there's that little bit that kind of hopes he doesn't, yeah. but he's okay with it, you know. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, and, and you know, I have to ask: Is this an editorial line drawn in the sand by O'Neill, or was this Collins just his take on the character? Which is really interesting, considering he, you know, he he loves the finger spraying Batman, which wouldn't have never thought about killing anyone. Sure, the earliest Batman, you know, a fitting in for his kind, you know, that that right. Batman d- didn't care. He'd throw a guy into a punch a guy into a vat of acid or take a gun out and shoot a bunch of you know Hugo Strange's monster men. But uh, by the time that finger and spray, well, by the time Sprang came along, Batman wasn't killing anybody. But Way down the line in O'Neill's run, uh, during the Nightstand storyline, there's this big, when Bruce is trying to get back in shape as Batman after he's come back from having his back broken, uh, Lady Shiva sends all these guys after him, and it looks like Bruce has killed one of them. And Dick and Tim are just, they can't believe, oh, you finally killed, oh my God, you know, this is, you're not, I don't know who, Tim like starts crying. He's like, I don't know who you are anymore, you know, (laughs) that's so Obviously, at least by that point, the post-crisis Batman has not killed. That's in the backbone of the post-crisis Batman, the Nightfall, Night's Quest, Night's End uh, storyline. So just for giggles, I referenced a book from a few years down the line from this issue, uh, Mark Stackpole's DC Heroes role-playing game Batman Sourcebook, Hmm. the second edition from 1989, which was published by Mayfair Games, which – May eventually come up in the Hero Points podcast if that ever returns. So uh, <laughs> there you go, Shag and Siskoid. We're waiting. Uh, Stackpole. We're waiting. Come on. Justice League source book. Come on. Uh, Stackpole directly addresses uh, in a little article, is Batman a killer? And he cites two storylines in our future, which I don't want to get into, but where Batman allowed an enemy to die, but he took no active part in their death. And his conclusion was – he is not a killer. Mm-hmm. So now that might be splitting hairs, uh, but <laughs> clearly at some point, Denny O'Neill, as editor, decided that Batman had not killed. And then we've got Colin saying Batman has killed in self-defense. Uh, this might just be another case of they're not exactly sure, especially after the Dark Knight where Batman you know, does – he can't, which is really odd because they make a big deal in the Dark Knight. It's always bothered me. He can't finish killing the Joker, but he does – kill that person that had the kid and it's like believe me i'll do it and i believe you you know he that's obvious that he kills that person and with a gun and that's the scene that they almost recreated as we talked about in bvs mm-hmm. when the guy's got martha but then he blows up his flamethrower tank or whatever it is and why you know, did you which, say that name <laughs> martha <laughs> why did you say that name yeah um so <laughs> but I think coming out of that, I don't think they knew, again, they didn't know what to do with Batman. Mm-hmm. You know, he, they didn't want to say, okay, he just goes out and kills people. But they, I think they were also, at this point, kind of okay that he, you know, in self-defense, he might have killed a couple guys, you know, which I'm not okay with that. I mean, right. me personally, my Batman, I, I'm okay with the racial goal stuff. But the, the problem we'll get into as we go through these books is of course the escalation of of just how awful the villains are. Right. You know what what they do, especially of a personal nature to Batman, and especially of course the Joker. You right. know, and then you ask the question: Okay, because the writers and the editors and the artists decided to go here with the villain, you're still leaving the hero down here. 
and all of a sudden the hero seems impotent because he you can't have him do what he needs to do to address what the villain has done. It's just ultimately unsatisfying because right. you don't want your hero to go there, but at the same time, that's that in every other fiction going, mm-hmm. that's what the hero would do. He would end the threat, you right. know. So I mean, it's a, it's a slippery slope we're going to be on. Here yeah, with this type of stuff. yeah, and, and it's tough because at this point, the Joker has killed thousands of people. Um, right. But but my, I, I still kind of come back to this idea of well, why does Batman have to stop? Like at some point, the insanity of defense doesn't really work that way in real life. Like he would have been executed by the state long ago, regardless. Right, yeah. Like so, anyway, um, I think Gordon would have put a bullet in his head at yes, the end of yes, uh, or, of No Man's Land. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if if not killing joke, then by No Man's Land, it would have been a seven type deal where he just put a bullet. In his head. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just would have been the end. It had been the end of it. You know, I mean, that's that's the way the story. If Batman hadn't done it by then, that's the way Gordon, I think, would have ended it. Gordon's a cop. He's going to shoot people. He is allowed to, you know, illegally, yeah. <laughs> you know, with, with, with the right, not, not that he's James Bond with a license to kill, but he can take lethal action, you know. And, and, I mean, of course, that's getting into a lot of dicey things, as we know. But it'll be interesting. We'll have this discussion many, many times, I yes, think. Yes, we will, because as, we've been, as, we, as we said in the beginning and as we were saying now – this is post-crisis Batman, but is it? We don't know what Batman is yet. They're still sort of finding him. He's still being formed. And again, because we're going to see so many different writers, artists, and creators working in this era, there's a, a lot of kind of a, a discrepancies. Um, I just had a few other notes before we get um, – one thing about Collins's script. He name-drops a few real-life people or bands. He mentions Bernie Getz, the subway shooter. He mentions mm-hmm. a couple of bands in the beginning, the Velvet Underground and the Del Fuegos. And whenever you do something like this, like you name drop, like I can see, like if I was reading this in 1986 or 87, I would have been like, oh, cool, you know, he's like, you know, talking about like, like hip, like, like current things, but they instantly date your story. Mm -hmm. Um, And now, you know, 30 years later, it's like, Really? Uh, a few other things. Like, and now I wanted to mention Tommy Karma because the details that we find out about his life actually gives us, whether it was an intentional or not, a timeline for Batman mm-hmm. because they say Tommy Karma had a six-year-old who was killed in the car and the six-year-old was named after Robin, which mm-hmm. means he had already known of Batman and idolized him more than six years ago, for one thing. And, and of course, like when Tommy's wife and kid killed, that might have been up to a year ago. When we don't exactly know, but that means Batman already had a Robin as much as six years ago. Mm-hmm. We also hear um, Tommy's mom says he worshipped Batman as a teenager. Yeah. Now, it also says he was the youngest detective in Gotham, but still, like, really, like, forget about what you see in the movies. People do not become detective, do not get their detective badge in their 20s. They, I mean, you could, you could make an possible exception because they said he was a hero cop. He was awarded, he was, he was promoted because of some meritorious valor, but still, the time it takes you to go through the ranks of police, all of the training, all the different departments, like most detectives in a major urban city like a New York, Chicago, Baltimore, or Gotham City, or Metropolis, it takes decades. Like you, you're probably talking about like the the youngest detectives, late 30s at the earliest, more likely 40s and 50s would be the average age for detectives. Mm-hmm. So 
Like we're, we're saying, like if he was worshiping Batman as a teenager, let's say maybe Tommy Karma was was twenty late twenties, like twenty nine or something when he became a detective or something. So you still you're still talking about Batman has been in operation for more than ten years, right? And he's had yeah. Robin for more than six years. So yeah, <laughs> and already you're sort of complicating things because oh, we're, we might have to start de aging him soon. Yeah, five-year timeline. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you know, it's it, it's interesting because I think, and, and this is my nerd brain has remembered this, and we'll, we'll find out in a little bit, but in Batman number 416, which is the big uh, Robin Nightwing issue where Starlin tries to iron out some of the stuff that Max Allen Collins <laughs> has is going to create as, as we go along, which is really interesting considering these two guys become very important to the Batman title in the next several years. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, Starlin, as the writer, says that Dick was Robin for six years, I believe, which, which actually works. He was Robin from the time he was 13 to the time he was 19, which actually, it makes sense. And it's about as, you know, especially nowadays, uh, I think since people think about child endangerment a whole lot more because we have gone more realistic with everything, you know, people just can't swallow a Robin that's under the age of like, at least 11 or 10. Right. I mean, you know, because some things they've said he was like eight when he first became Robin, which is really hard to swallow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I but mean, he, I, I mean he was in college when, you know, when he like left Bruce or whatever. Like, right. In, in, yeah. in pre-crisis continuity. Yeah, yeah, he was. Exactly. He, you know, he went to college. So he went to college when he was 18. And, of course, he was 18 for like a full decade before <laughs> the new Teen Titans came along. And he became 19, you know. Uh, so he could just barely be a teenager still. Uh, of course, Wolfman wrote all of them as being much older, even though they were still supposed to be teens or right at 20. But but anyway, so the six-year thing kind of works. But, yeah, when you go back to thinking about karma, he's got to be, you know, in his late 20s at the youngest. His teen years, you know, if you go back, that's, you know, okay, that's 12. You say he was 18, you know, when maybe he was 18 when Batman debuted. But that means Batman's been around for at least, you know— 12 years or so so i mean it's it's uh yeah it's it, 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 that type of stuff is is maddening if you if yeah. you go down that too far yeah. <laughs> you know one thing that really got uh, again i, I mean I, I like jim starlin's art i actually interviewed jim starlin once for back issue number 48 about robin which will that'll come up as we uh we get into uh, uh the discussion of the different versions of jason todd and all that stuff because that's what the article was about was basically about the <laughs> the uh the lost version of of jason todd uh from the earth one continuity but like i said there's some really strange art pacing choices uh not that the art's bad i mean there's a couple weird drawings here and there in it but you know it's very dynamic it's the action's great and everything but like when it shows the portrait of Carmen and his family, it's really tiny. It's hard to make out. The printing's really bad in my copy anyway. And it's like one – this is the color's fault, but it's like just a blue. It's like completely blue to, I guess, look like the reflection of a, of a piece of glass in a frame. But there's all these other shots on that page, all these other panels of Tommy's mother's face that you would think would have been better utilized to show – this family portrait since this is his motivation yeah you know it's it's really strange and then later when robin shows up and he says robin and you see these little bitty tiny heads of his family you know <laughs> it's like i mean I, I understand you know there's there's a difference between like beating somebody over the head with it but this is almost too subtle you know it's right because this this is this whole guy's 
motivation that he that he went overboard. And and I do like I, I like the little subtle idea that because Tommy idolized Batman, he was a sloppy detective. That brand of of Batman's justice before he went over the edge didn't serve him well. He botched cases because he was trying to be the crusading hero without doing his due diligence. Right. And, you know, probably paperwork and the type of stuff, the the red tape that, you know, all good cops and dirty hairy types and movies right. hate. Again, you know like it takes law it takes years of training to get to that level. Like Detectives are who they are because they take classes, they go to school, they train for that. They have to be the smartest guy in the room. So mm-hmm. if you're, yeah. you know, if you're in your like mid to late twenties or something, you just you're not ready for that. So yeah, I, I think there's probably some emotional immaturity, just not being smart enough, not like having the training. And yeah, like you said, just idolizing Batman and thinking those type of tactics were appropriate. So. Well, another thing this this story, you know, down the line, we'll see in the post-crisis era, Denny O'Neill becomes a hard and fast subscriber to Batman as an urban legend. Nobody really knows mm-hmm. if he exists. And that story does not work. If it, uh, that, that idea does not work in this story at all. Well, the fact uh, that there are Batman in costume shops. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, they, and they look like Batman. Yeah, you know, they look like, identical. If, if, if it was like, you know, there were all these weird variations of Batman, you know, one looks like a real bat, one look, you know, it, it, that there were these, but they all look like the Bronze Age, you know, blue, gray, yellow Batman. So this story as it written doesn't work if you follow that. Of course, that's not been, we've not gotten there yet. Right. So, but we will. <laughs> so the last thing that I just want to say about this issue, I mean, this is the first issue written by Max Allen Collins. We will talk about him a lot. Again, I think most he, as you said, he, I think his his run is kind of maligned by a lot of critics and fans. But I had no problem with this story as an introductory chat, as the first chapter in his run. I thought this was a good, strong story. I enjoyed reading it, and I am hoping, like I said, that as we go through stories, I will be able to find some really good stuff that I like in all of his stories. We'll see how it goes. But uh, I, I thought as a as a first chapter, this was pretty good. Yeah, me too. And, and like I said, when I when I tried to come to it with an open mind. And the first time I read it, I really didn't. And and I, and, and I was kind of like, well, here I go again, which mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I felt kind of bad about it. But I read it when I read it again, um, just a few days later, I, I don't know what it was. Maybe I, maybe it's because I feel guilty about not coming to it with an open mind. But uh, <laughs> but I, I did and, and I did enjoy it. And I think, you know, you, you talked about uh, he worked with uh, Mickey Spillane. There's a Mike Hammer type feel mm-hmm. to it. And, you know, I think this. Uh, this is an approach that that works with Batman. I do think that, uh, like we said, there's some Frank Miller uh, influences here. I think you know you get quite a bit of uh, TV screens telling you what's going on. That's very Miller. I don't. He didn't create that, but it was definitely a device he used in The Dark Knight a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quite a bit of that here. So it, it's it's he's absorbing what's going around. Uh, the in the Batman zeitgeist at the time and and filtering it through what he loves of Batman. I, I think he's got some interesting ideas about the character. I don't really agree with those entirely, like I said, and I do think it's interesting that is Jason. Jason seems kind of bloodthirsty, yeah. considering we're not we've not yet seen his origin of Jason yet, and you can argue. That Colin's version of Jason, despite his background, isn't really the one that's 
you know, kind of unbalanced. You don't get that oddly enough till Starlin starts writing him. So yeah. that that I remember. We'll see as we go along. Maybe we'll pick up on more of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the kind of more slightly unhinged Jason is uh, is a product of uh, of the Starlin stories, really. So yeah. it, it'll be interesting to see as his his evolution because this is the first notion we've got that he definitely seems more bloodthirsty than Dick, you know, ever was. So. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, we are going to take another promotional break right now. On the other side, we've got your listener feedback from Episode 3. We'll be back in a minute. I regret to say, sir, Batman and Robin are not at present available. What? Oh, surely you, you must be jesting. Alas, sir, I am not. Gotham City is overcome by villainy on the comic page from the likes of the Joker, <laughs> the Riddler... And the Penguin, as they run rampant, only one man has the courage, the gall, and the skills to face the Silver Age. Hi, I'm J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. If you haven't guessed, this is an overly dramatic promo for my show, The Dave Cave, a Batman podcast looking at the tales of the dynamic duo from the Silver Age. Come back with me to a time when Batman was less grim, Robin was content to wear hot pants, and the villains didn't rip their own faces off. Each episode will examine a tale from the pages of comics such as Batman, Detective Comics, The Brave and the Bold, and World's Finest Comics. It's all the bat action, bat adventure, and bat puns that you can handle on The Dave Cave, available at thedavecavepodcast.com, iTunes, or the podcatcher of your choice. The Dave Cave Batman Podcast, because in the Silver Age, there were no limits. Holy unsatisfying indie. Nightcast Episode 3 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Andrew in Belfast, Ange at Dr. Ange70, Between the Pages, Bill Beer, Brad Dade, Callum Nar, Cash Flag, a.k.a. Al, Chris Sheehan, Codeman at Beware the Matman, Coffee and Comics, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Comics in the Golden Age, Comics Tweets, CT Profit, Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, Gabriel M. Cox, Hicks at reading underscore Hicks, Jacob Edwards, James Walsh, Jeff Bowman, Jeremy Gunter, Jim Bell, Justice's First Dawn, Laurel, Longbox Crusade, Matches Balone, Michael Bailey, Pod Dylan, Relatively Geeky, Robert Lewis, World Spine Podcast, Ruth Dickens, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Sin at alias Scarecrow, Treasury Comics, and Warlord Worlds. Okay, since last episode, we've received Facebook likes and shares from Andrew Leyland, Billy LaCasey, Brad Dade, Charlie Niemeyer, Clinton Robinson, David Foster, Daniel Budnick, DeBeche, Eric Royer, The Fire and Water Network, H. Daniel Raybolt, J. David Weeder, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Kal-El Commandy, Ken Holtzhauser, Kyle Benning, Longbox Crusade, Mark Adams, Michael Ridge, Mike Zumo, Neil Winslow Beckers, Pat Sampson, Raffaello Accardo, Rob Kelly, Scott Cage, Sean Emmons, Shag, Steve J. Rogers, Stephen Bird, and Tim Brown. We received a Facebook comment from Michael Ridge who said, Crisis on Infinite Earths was the first time I decided it was time to get out of comics reading. Flashpoint was the latest. So I was only picking up a few comics that were pretty much disconnected from mainstream continuity. I picked up Batman 400 because anniversary issues were usually good standalone issues, but didn't pick up 401 or Detective 568. I wish I had read O'Neill's letter because I think you have to base Batman on his vow as a 10-year-old to avenge his parents' death by warring on all criminals. 
Earth 2 Batman could give up the cape and cowl because he found a different way to continue the war as police commissioner. It sounds like I might have liked this run if crossover events hadn't continued to sour me on comics reading. Yeah, you know, that's that's uh, that's a good point. Uh, I really did like that Bruce Wayne became the commissioner on Earth 2. I thought that was a, a neat way for him to continue in his work. But, uh, you know, he was getting older to put the Batman cowl aside. And it uh, that was a really uh, strong idea. I liked that a lot. And, you know, that's another case of I just one reason I loved Earth 2 so much because they could do things like that. Yeah. We also got a message from Andrew Leyland of Hey Kids Comics and Palace of Glittering Delights. Listen to episodes two and three back to back today. Hugely enjoyable. This is a fascinating era for the Batman. I can't wait for you to get to the Bar Davis detective run. Personally, I've been in my Batman phase for 40 years, and I've not grown out of it yet. <laughs> uh, Bar Davis, that's next next time. So yep, next episode. Uh, yay, I'm all excited. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Andy also shared his top three Batman artists, Don Newton, Michael Golden, and Scott McDaniel. Oh, that's a nice list. A different, too. Mm-hmm. You know. Did Michael Golden, did he do anything other than the Batman special? That was the only thing I could think of. He did quite a few uh, Batman stories in the late 70s. He did a few in uh, Batman itself. He did one in a, I can't think of the name. It was one of those DC special series, blah, blah, blah. But it was the Batman Spectacular uh, from, I think it was 78. It's one of the first comics that I remember having bought for me. Hmm. Uh, it's got a Marshall Rogers cover, which explains a lot. Sure. And uh, and it's got a Marshall Rogers story and a Michael Golden story and a Michael Netzer slash Nasser nice. Batman story. So it's like dead on awesome art in that comic book. Yeah, uh, I'm not familiar with that. I was trying to think, yeah, I, I guess like those any of those issues might have slipped under my writer or I just don't remember them because the only Michael Golden story I could think of was the uh the special from 1984 the player on the other yeah, side yeah yeah, yeah. So. which brings to mind you know that's now that's now there's your good batman doppelganger story yeah. i mean that's oof, and that's yeah. mike Barr too so uh yeah but yeah michael golden he did he did some um batman family he did like the bam bat and the demon and he also did a few batman stories around that time mm-hmm. i've got a um this isn't batman related michael golden drew the cover to gi joe yearbook issue one it's one of my mm-hmm. favorite gi joe issues and last yes. year uh dr g the man of nerdology the host of the pulp to pixel podcast got him to sign that print at a convention and sent it to me really cool i love that oh. okay yeah that's that's awesome that's one's like is that the one with like roadblock and it's Snake yeah Eyes? it's a it's a collection of it's like a good little montage of the guys on like a giant american flag with some of the vehicles in the background and stuff it's yeah it's yeah. really cool so. nice all right, moving on to the comments posted over at the Fire and Water Podcast Network, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. As always, we encourage you to join the conversation there, leave a comment of your own, and read along, since when we cover feedback on this segment, we might cherry-pick from the comments. This isn't to slight anyone, or <coughs> shag. This is just meant to speed things up, so if there is a lot of similar comments. Anyway... Our first comment on the site came from Jeremy Gunter, who said, Sorry, only two accounts. I'm too lazy to make a third. And this was because we made fun of Jeremy's two identical Facebook accounts on last episode's feedback section. So, good response, Jeremy. Uh, Michael Bailey, the host of Views from the Long Box from Crisis to Crisis, Superman podcast, and Radio KAL Live, said, The whole thing about how long an episode in a synopsis and said episode should be piqued my interest. 
Number one, writing in a synopsis sucks. I've done hundreds of them over the years, and at this point, I try to, as Ryan put it, hit the bullet points and leave the specifics for the overall discussion. I also insert humor, but honestly, that's more for me than for the audience. There are only so many ways you can write, and then Superman hit, fill in the villain name here, so I feel you on that end. I'll jump in right there. If you want to know how to do, how to use humor expertly in your story synopsis, check out any of Nathaniel Hubbard's podcasts, either Teen Titans Wasteland, which is now Tighten Up a Defense. He can do a synopsis like he should teach a master's class in it. It's beautiful. Yes, I agree. That's, I second that. Uh, number two, episode length. This is a personal thing, so your mileage may vary, but whenever I hear someone give feedback to a show that includes, a show should only be filling the amount of time here. And what they're really saying is, I like shows that are same amount of time. There's nothing wrong with this because, as I just wrote, mileage will vary, but I think trying to shackle a show to a set amount of time never works. There are people that are very good at doing shorter-length shows and discussing more books in that amount of time. And there are other people that have long commutes or listen while they work, and they like longer discussions. Podcasts, to me, are organic. You have to fill out what the hosts are comfortable with and what the audience wants. Believe me, if the editor doesn't want to deal with hours and hours of audio to stitch together, they'll do something about it. I think your past three episodes have been as long as they needed to be. Well, thanks, Michael. We appreciate it. Um, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I think you know, podcasting. We're we're not we're not on TV. We don't have to. It's not twenty two or forty four minutes. Um, it can be as long as as you want it to be. And and I I think you know as long as there's not like huge like pauses where there's no dead where there's dead air. <laughs> Which I mean, there's very few podcasts I've listened to where that's happened. But uh, you know, I listen to them at work. And if it's a uh, half hour long, an hour long, four hours long, I don't care. You know, I mean, <laughs> that gives me more stuff to listen to. So I'm, I'm good with it. Dial C for comment said, thanks for liking my name. Big fan of Dial H. Still waiting for someone to do a Dial H podcast. That is untapped potential. That'd be interesting. Yeah, um, especially if you could if you could find, track down, especially the 80 series, if you could track down some of the people that sent in the designs mm-hmm. and, and interviewed them, that would be really cool. That would be. Oh, that <laughs> All right, somebody's got to get on that. <laughs> Figure out how to do that. So. Uh, Dial C also said, funny thing about the cover, and he's referring to Detective Comics 568, it looks like Batman has this face of embarrassment, like he's wondering when Alfred or Robin are going to come and get him down from getting his cape caught. I didn't yeah. I didn't see it until he pointed that out, but now I totally see it. Yeah, I'd love to say, uh, Alfred, uh, yes, Master Bruce, uh, it happened again. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be right there, so. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Rob Kelly, our good buddy and the host of Treasury Cast, Pod Dylan, the Film and Water Podcast, the Fire and Water Podcast, and as we previewed the upcoming Digest Cast, Rob said, I'm a big fan of Klaus Janssen's work, so I remember loving this issue. I think the cover is great. It reminds me of the Julia Schwartz ones from the 60s that placed Batman in a sure to be fatal situation. And then he said, great episode, guys. I like Chris leading this one. Nice to change things up a bit. Well, thanks. I'm happy to <laughs> to do that whenever. I think the idea is for us to basically flip back and forth, right? So like yeah. one episode you'll lead and one episode I'll lead. So, you know, so next time. So that means you get stuck with the Max Allen Collins Batman. But you also get Batman year one I while do. I get Barr Davis. So. Right. <laughs> 
So, yeah, that, that is the plan. For for now, we're going to try and alternate, and it just sort of happens that I'll be taking the lead on the Batman issues, and Chris will take point on Detective, and we'll see how long that goes. We might decide to flip it around or change things up in a little while, but yeah. When we get to a, an odd, like a special or an annual or a one-shot or something, that'll probably throw it off. And it'll yeah, still... and also some of the issues will start double shipping, like Batman, well, I think, starts double shipping in a year or two. That's true, yes. Yeah. yeah. So. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I'm a big fan of Klaus Janssen, and that cover has always been a favorite. I do like Batman with road signs, but another <laughs> fine example being, well, Ryan will know this one, the Brave and the Bold number 91 and sensational Nick Carty work. That's the one where they're both laid out in the road with the guy like riding away on the motorcycle. Yeah, it's Batman and Black Canary with the sign that says you're now entering Gotham. Welcome to Fun City. I love that one. I'm sure in the near future I will cover that on Power of Fishnets. Yeah, that's a that's a great the, anytime Nick Carty draws Black Canaries, great mm-hmm. anyway. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Denny O'Neill's editorial attitude always struck me as arrogant. You can go off on your own direction, altering the tone without dissing the previous guys. I remember at the time hating that he didn't bother printing letters from the end of Lynn Ween's period. Heck, people had taken the time to write in. The creators deserved to see feedback. A clean break indeed, as if he had to pretend that all their stories hadn't happened in order to get attention for his people's. Uh, yeah, I could kind of see that. that. That did seem a little, you know, I mean, it's still the same book. It's still mm-hmm. the same character. So, yeah, that, that did seem a little, yeah, all those comments from probably Detective, I mean, from Batman, like 397 or so on, just, you know, went away into mm-hmm. the ether. So, yeah. Martin writes as well, I like the creator spotlights, and I have no problem with your length, which... <laughs> <laughs> Why, well, thank you, made you Martin. a little pithy comment there. <laughs> how, uh, how generous of you to say so, Martin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Paul Hicks from the Doom Patrol podcast, Waiting for Doom, said, Did you know there were these creators called Grant and Brayfogle who were pretty good? I wouldn't mind you doing a combined episode for Batman and Detective Issues until you got to the good stuff. <laughs> well, in my opinion, the good stuff comes next episode, mm-hmm. too, so... The Bar Davis run. I mean, I love Grant Brayfogle, but I'm just as big of a fan of the of the Bar Davis run. So, I, you know, but I, I I get you. We we get you. We'll 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 get Brayfogle as we said. We'll actually get some Brayfogle here before too long. Uh, not not Grant for a while, but we will get some Brayfogle. Mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy McGlinchey said, I read this story in The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, Volume 2, which featured Penguin and Catwoman, which was released around the time of Batman Returns. Reading it in that volume, and indeed reading it now, apart from the mention that the person in the fat suit was Godfrey, there is no real linkage of this story to Legends. Thinking now, I wonder if it was an inventory story repurposed to make it link to Legends. Looking at the Legends miniseries itself, maybe it would have been better to have some lead-in with Batman's fight with the Joker in that series in this issue of Detective. Although, with Joker and the next few issues by Barr and Davis, maybe that wasn't possible. And then Jimmy said, loved the spotlight on Denny O'Neill. He was the big constant as I started to read Batman, and there is no denying his influence in some of the best Batman comics from the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I don't think the last issue was an inventory story. I mean, it it might have just been read to be self-contained and not really part of anything else. And he does bring up a good point. It would have been nice if it linked a little bit closer to Batman's story running through Legends, but considering the next couple issues would feature the Joker prominently, that does kind of make it maybe a little bit kind of stepping on their toes, so... Yeah. They could have they could have had a scene where Batman like there's a per- bottle of perfume and and Batman like oh no not perfume you know <laughs> <laughs> oh god oh god don't get it in my eyes you know? <laughs> uh, 
Finally, we got two more emails after last episode. Our buddy Javi the Golden Boy wrote in again to say, First of all, thanks for the thoughtful response to the criticism of my previous letter. You provided a thoughtful and realistic answer that was greatly appreciated. I enjoyed this episode, and I don't have much to say in the way of criticism. Don't worry, I'll get more and more opinionated as Batman gets darker and darker. (laughs) Well, you might have some opinions on this story then. Uh, Thanks for an hour and a half of interesting discussion. Thank you for writing in. And we also got an email from Brad Dade. Brad said, One of my New Year's resolutions is to write to podcasts I enjoy more. As someone who has done podcasts, I know how nice it is to get feedback. Really looking forward to following your show as it dives into an era of bat history that is near and dear to my heart. Besides it being around the time I got into comics, what I love about this era is how Batman is still human. That might sound weird. After all, he's always been human, right? What I mean is, while extremely capable, he was not the Bat-God of the modern era, an era that arguably started with Morrison's JLA, a Batman that almost effortlessly can be anyone at any time. Don't get me wrong, I loved Batman in Grant's JLA, but it feels like since then that is how everyone writes him. Today's Batman feels like if you'd never heard of Batman before, one could just assume he has superpowers the way he is portrayed in fighting villains. Also, the current costume is basically an Iron Man armor with a cape. (laughs) And that's a good point. I, I was thinking about that, and I never had a problem with the way he was portrayed in the JLA comics. And I think that is similar in tone to the way he was portrayed in the Justice League animated series. I think that's kind of necessary to have Batman realistically operate with legit superheroes. If he's working with Wonder Woman and Superman and Green Lantern, there needs to be something about Batman that feels like that he can go toe-to-toe with them. So if it's just an attitudinal thing, if it's just the way he's presented, I have no problem with that. But when he is presented that way in his own solo stories, you reach the point it's like, well... There, there is no realistic threat to him. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I see where it is. Again, I like the way he was in JLA. I like the way Bat, the way Batman was in the Justice League cartoon. I think those type of infallible Bat God personas and depictions of him work for those types of stories. But in his own solo adventures, yeah, I think he needs to be a little bit more human, a little bit more fallible. Still better than average, but, you know. I was just watching, uh, Derek William Crabb does a great YouTube series called History of Comics on Film, and I was binge watching those last night and he brought up he was actually talking about the super friends but he brought up that batman in the super friends wasn't at the point where he could you know take on like you know solomon grundy in a fist fight or something and and uh and you know he was kind of groaning about that on on some of the later animated versions and i can see that i think sometimes they maybe went a little overboard with just you know batman you know being literally being out of his league with certain opponents and stuff but like you said they had to if they didn't up his cunning or his strength level, then you're just falling back on bat gadgets. Then then you are just doing the super friends where him and Robin can pull the most ridiculous things out of their utility belt to compensate. And, you know, nobody really wants to see that. I don't think I mean if it's a if it's it's a humor if it's done in a funny way like on the Adam West TV show, then that's part of the joke. But if it's legitimately trying to get them out of a scrape and they pull out something totally stupid, then then it just kind of, you know, I mean, as much as I love the Super Friends, that just doesn't work for right. a lot of modern readers and, and viewers. Of course, the downside to that is they kind of they kind of make Superman often look weaker than he really should be. Mm-hmm. 
and and then you know, but they kind of answered that in the last, very last episode of Justice League, where Superman gives that great speech about he lives in a world of cardboard and he always has to hold back, but he doesn't with Dark Side, and then he just knocks the holy right. crud out of him. <laughs> yeah. No, that was good. Yeah. yeah. Um, Brad's email continues. The Batman of the mid '80s to early '90s felt like he could still take on a room full of bad guys, but he would at least take the odd punch or could be struck from behind because he was just a man in a costume. Sure, he had gadgets like every Batman has, but they didn't overshadow what Batman could do. This version of Batman, to me, stood out more compared to Superman and/or the Flash, as it showed how much more a hero he could be. As a mere human, he has to work that much harder to get the job done. Look at the journey he went through during the first half of Nightfall as an example. Today's Batman almost feels too powerful, if that makes any sense. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go yell at these kids to get off my lawn. Cheers, Brad Dade. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for the email, Brad. That was great. Yes, that was. (laughs) Uh, And that wraps up our listener feedback for Batman Nightcast Episode 3. Next episode, which will be Nightcast Episode 5, Chris, what are we looking at next time? We are looking at the first issue of Detective Comics by Mike Barr and Alan Davis. Yay! Woo. Sorry, I was trying to I was trying to cheer. <laughs> My voice just got Oh, that was pathetic. Woo! <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Uh, very exciting. Really looking forward to talking about that one. I reread it just the other day and uh oh yeah, that's this is going to be a, a fun time. A lot lot of things to say about this one. All right, so see you in 2 weeks, folks. See ya. Seasons change and lessons get learned. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me, Chris, on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast.gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.